So the reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 25, and you can find this on page 726 of the Church Bibles. So Isaiah verse 25. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Andy. Lord, we pray that you would speak now to our hearts, our minds, and our wills. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, um, as we said, it's Creation Sunday, and we're thinking about the good earth and how we care for it and the wonderful universe that our Lord God has created. Um, I was just thinking just now of another couple of pictures I could have, uh, I could have put into this. One would have been um, Earthrise from the moon back in the 60s when we landed on... Well, we, we, I didn't land on the moon. When, when people landed on the moon and there was these wonderful pictures of Earthrise from the moon. And the other picture um, is the Voyager picture as it's leaving the solar system. And there's this tiny blue speck that is our beautiful earth, our beautiful home. I'm, I've got a scientific background. Um, I, uh, in my um, secondary school education, I just absolutely loved chemistry. Sorry for those who absolutely hated chemistry, but I absolutely loved chemistry. Um, and uh, my poor chemistry teacher, who was also my crusader leader, Urban Saints, as they're now called, he, um, he knew that I, I went off and bought my own chemistry textbooks and read them avidly before we got onto the subject in his classes. So, so um, every now and then he'd look at me and just check it out that he'd got it right. It was, um, it was tricky. <laughs> he also was the reason I became a Christian because he somehow managed to wangle that we could use the school gym on a Friday night, and we used the school gym, and then we had Bible studies afterwards. 
and uh, in 1964, gosh, in 1964, how many years ago is that now? That's about 59, yeah. Um, a crusader camp in Polzeth, I came to the Lord, and I've never regretted it. But I've always held together a passion for science and a passion for following the Lord Jesus. And those two things do not conflict with each other. Um, I've never had a problem with them conflicting each other, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I always get a plug in somewhere, you know, that, that, um, uh, because I think it's really important that we help people to understand that you don't have to abandon your brains to be a Christian. Um, because the public perception is this one of conflict. You either believe science started it or God started it. If you believe in one, you can't believe the other. Many young people actually believe that belief in God and belief in science are alternatives to each other. They learn about the Bible in their childhood, maybe, and then they're told what really happened in science. And they then reject God and the Bible as on a par with Santa Claus. We've just had a wonderful holiday club at our church in Sheffield. And uh, the theme was about awe and wonder and, and the world of science and so on. And we had 52. And some of them came thinking you can't be a Christian and a scientist. These were primary school kids. And at the end of the week... 50 out of the 52 or 3 had given their lives to Jesus, which was just wonderful. Um, the 53rd uh, was um, uh, a granddaughter of a friend of ours um, who, who said, well, I did that last year, so I'm not, I don't have to do it again, do I? So there we go. I want to say... If you're a Christian who wants others to find God in Jesus, don't put unnecessary hurdles in their way. You may believe in seven literal days of creation 6,000 years ago, but that's only one way of interpreting the Bible. Don't make it an essential part of becoming a Christian for others. Insisting on that can stop them looking at Jesus. I know of two Christian women at our church who persuaded their husbands to go to Alpha courses, not at our church, and they were told that they had to believe in seven literal days of creation and both of them were put off Christianity. And if there's someone here who's attracted to Christianity, is seeking who Jesus is, and wants to, give the, and wants to think about all of those things, but think you might have to abandon science to become a Christian, you really don't. You don't. This conflict model really has very little basis. A key point in that is that there have been and still are many scientists who are Christians. One of my heroes is Michael Faraday, who discovered how to generate electricity but was well-known and respected in the 19th century as a Christian. His status as a scientist was about the same as Richard Dawkins, but he had Christian faith. And um, 
he was respected for that because he didn't push his faith onto people. He just showed them kindness and forgiveness and gentleness. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. How many people have seen the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures? Okay, that's a bit better than this morning. Um, they were founded by Michael Faraday in the early, uh, the early 19th century. He was the first Royal Institution Christmas Lecturer to young people, and it still happens every year now and is televised. Another famous, uh, currently famous guy is Francis Collins, who was the director of the Human Genome Project. Um, science played a key role in him coming to faith. He went, he went to university as an atheist, and he was going to uh, do medicine. And as part of his medicine course, he did biochemistry. And biochemistry blew him away. He just looked at that and thought, wow, wow, there's more to this. You know, the, the, the complexity and ingenuity of the biochemical world he just loved. His actual coming to faith, though, was the witness of a Christian patient in the hospital. And that's an interesting one. But alongside getting, getting your head right, there is also listening to the witness of others. And that's really important. There was a survey of American scientists, professional scientists, in 1997. Um, and they asked uh, these professional scientists, did they believe in a God who answered prayer? And over 39% of them said, yes, they did. 39%. Which is comparable with, with, you know, with America itself, that around about 40% of Americans would have answered that question, yes, themselves. There's nothing special about being a scientist that means you can't follow Jesus. There really isn't. In our church in Sheffield, we have a physics professor who studies gravitational waves part of a team that's part of the worldwide team that's discovered some he was leading that team in Sheffield and we've just um, I hear there might be one or two engineers around uh, tonight and we we also have a lady from Liverpool with a broad Liverpudlian accent um, who is an engineering professor at Sheffield University she does something called impact engineering it's about making sure buildings don't fall down and all that sort of thing and she's, uh, she's just also completed a distance learning theology degree and has started training for ordination, although she will keep her post as a professor. You know, in this, in this country, we're blessed with resources for putting together science and faith. Uh, I'm a member of Christians in Science. Um, we have a group of several people at Sheffield Uni. Um, I've, watched I've watched conferences online by the Faraday Institute. And the Faraday Institute stuff is wonderful. Do have a look at it. And there's a recently uh, running program called Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science, run up in Durham by David Wilkinson. And interestingly, somebody else has joined, has joined running it, a guy called Lucas Mix, who, believe it or not, is a professional astrobiologist looking for life elsewhere. I could, I, could, I could 
talk for hours about life elsewhere, but I won't. Um, except to say that with what's happening at the moment, uh, a couple of weeks ago they discovered carbon dioxide beneath the ice on the, in the ocean of, uh, of uh, Europa, the moon of Jupiter. And they've also discovered through the James Webb, Webb telescope a, a planet going round a star 120 light years away which has shown through its spectrum um, the existence of dimethyl sulfide, which apparently is a chemical that uh, you, on Earth you only get from life. I, I'm going to say when rather, rather than if. When stroke if life is discovered elsewhere, there's going to be a huge, you know, a huge thing. What are we doing as Christians to prepare for that? What are we doing as those of us who like to think theologically? How are we going to respond to people saying, oh, they discovered life, but some, some star millions of light years away, God can't possibly exist. You know, because they will say stupid things like that. And we have to find ways of talking about that. And I could do that forever, but I won't. I'll carry on with what I'd written. <laughs> this passage from Isaiah 40 that we've just read a passage that speaks of the immense beauty of the heavens above us and of the greatness of the, of the hang on yeah that's right I am in the right place um, and of the greatness of the God who created it all you know we so easily think that people in biblical times didn't know anything about the immensity and beauty of the universe of course they did because they didn't have light pollution and they didn't have air pollution. They had dark skies all the time. Paradise. I said this morning that, that um, uh, Michael Faraday, the only thing about Michael Faraday that I haven't liked is that he, he invented electricity and down the bottom of our garden there's a house uh, on the next street down the hill uh, who at the moment are constantly blaring out floodlights in the evening and I've got my telescope out and it's hopeless because of the um, yeah, so that you know that was the commonplace night sky for the ancient world no wonder they thought it was wonderful you know the, uh, the, the, the skies declare the glory of God now we can look at the universe um, uh, even in more depth with the Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Telescope. And I'm going to show you a picture. Anybody know what that's called? Hubble, Hubble, that's it, the Hubble Deep Field, Deep Space Field. It's an area of the sky somewhere, between Orion, somewhere alongside Orion, but in a, in a dark part of the sky where you can't see any stars with the naked eye. Every object there, this is from a long exposure, every object there is not a star, it's a galaxy. Each smudge of light there is a galaxy like our Milky Way with millions of stars. There are about 10,000 fuzzy shapes in that picture when you examine it in detail. 
different distances away from us, billion light years, 13 light years even, ones that are quite near the Big Bang itself. The scale of the universe is mind-blowing. So we're on a planet that goes around our star, the Sun. All the individual stars we see with the naked eye are part of our galaxy, which contains about 100,000 million stars, give or take a few. This picture contains 10,000 galaxies. If you reproduce that density across the whole night sky, and there's no reason why you shouldn't, that means there's 50,000 million galaxies out there, each with millions and millions of stars. What is man that you are mindful of him, says the psalmist. Do we have any significance? Well, actually, yes, we do. There are good scientific reasons for saying that we are significant. The first is our connection to the size of the universe. In my teenage years, I used to ask awkward questions. Um, I probably still do ask awkward questions, yeah. Um, and I ask questions about the size and age of the universe. Why are there so many stars? Why is the universe so big? Why has it been there so long? I don't know whether some of you ask those sort of questions, but it's one of my sorts of questions. But there are answers to those questions to which we are connected. Why are there so many stars? Because the elements needed to make humans, and also to create everything else, the elements needed are made in stars. The first gen in, in, the, in the Big Bang, all you had was hydrogen and helium. Um, then as things gathered together and formed stars, inside stars, the light, those two light elements bang together and form the other, the other elements, the heavier elements, the elements that are needed for life, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, etc. That's why there are so many stars. But why has it been around so long? Because those first stars need to, some of them to die and turn into supernovae and explode and scatter those elements around the rest of, the, of, of space. Um, that's why it's been there so long. Our star, the sun, is a second generation star. Four or five million, billion, billion, billion years old. Um, and it can, it, the, the planets going round the sun can develop life because they have those heavier elements. Only second generation, uh, only planets around second, second generation stars can, uh, uh, can develop life. Why are they so far apart when you don't want to live too near a supernova? Because no life will develop. Lovely quote from a guy, uh, great, great Christian man of science who died a year or two ago, John Polkinghorne. He said, we are all made of the ashes of dead stars. Guys, you're all stardust. Whoa. And that realization gives a surprising twist to our contemplation of the immensity of the universe. Without all those trillions and trillions of stars, we would not be here to be dismayed by them or overwhelmed by them. 
See, stars and space are necessary to make us. In us, the universe has become aware of itself and of its creator. And we are far more complex and wonderful than any star. It's a quote by somebody called Ian Barber. We should not measure significance by size and duration, but by such criteria as complexity and consciousness. The greatest complexity has apparently been discovered in the middle range of size, not, in the, not at the size of the very small, not at the size of the enormous universe or galaxies. He points out, that there are, sev- there are 100 tr- trillion synapses in a human brain. That's nerve cell connections. The number of possible ways of connecting them is greater than the number of atoms in the whole universe. Wow. A higher level of organization and a greater richness of experience occurs in a human being than in a thousand lifeless galaxies. It's human beings, after all, that reach out to understand that cosmic immensity. The sun is big. The sun is wonderful, but it doesn't know it is. You are wonderful. You are a wonderful creation of the the Lord. But in the second part of our reading from Isaiah, we're told that the God of the universe cares for it. He knows all the stars by name. And he also knows each one of us by name. Because the God who's big enough to make this amazing universe is great enough and compassionate enough to care for us as well as being the awesome creator of an awesome universe. Those verses towards the end of the passage. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The God who cares for creation also cares for you and me. He's great enough and compassionate enough to do both. But more than that, God has given us humans a place in his creation. We read in Genesis 1 that humans are made in God's image. Our God is a relational God. At the heart of reality is a God of relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want to go through into the the prayer chapel after this, there's an icon on the wall over there called the Rublev icon. It's, uh, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gathered around a table with each other. And, well, actually, I can see it through there. Um, and the table in front of them, there's an empty space. That empty space is for you to sit in or me to sit in. Because our God is a God of relationships. He, want, he creates us to be in relationships with himself, with each other, and above all today, he calls us to be in relationship with creation. Genesis describes this relation with creation and talks about exercising dominion, but please don't switch off yet. 
will talk about dominion. Let's have the next picture, please. In the ancient Near East, rulers would often have statues of themselves made in their image as a way on the outskirts of cities that they ruled. It was a way of saying, this is my territory. And we are images of God. We are representatives of God. And we're supposed to exercise dominion over God's creation. But unfortunately, this idea of dominion has been totally misunderstood. All our relationships have been damaged by our disobedience, by our sin. Our relationship with God, our relationships with each other, and our relationship with the creation. We've interpreted, we've interpreted dominion as domination, thinking we can do what we like with the rest of creation. And we see the results around us in pollution, loss of biodiversity, and climate change. God calls the stars by name. He delights in creation. If you've never read it, have a look sometime this week at Job 38 to 41. Wonderful chapters, God celebrating the creation. Creation matters to God and it should matter to us. We're commanded to look after creation, not to exploit it. And this is the real issue of climate change. Um, These are quotes from um, around around the 70s. So those of you who weren't around in the 70s, sorry about this. Um, Sorry, Eleanor. (laughs) The the president of the States in in the the last half of the, the 1970s was Jimmy Carter, who was a Christian. And his climate advisor said this, I used to think that the top top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Carter himself put forward a vision for the US of energy independence through energy conservation and renewable power. And he saw that as a moral project which would require his fellow citizens to be more careful in their use of energy. It would avoid foreign wars about oil and it would benefit future generations. Wow. We don't learn much, do we? Subsequent presidents did not follow that up. Uh, Jason told me earlier tonight when I spoke to him about this that, that Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House roof and the first thing Ronald Reagan did was take them off. In 1972, an organization called the Club of Rome published uh, a document called Limits to Growth in which they argued that, the con- that continuous economic growth would damage the earth and its resources. We, we've known this for such a long time. 
But limiting economic growth is something that we won't vote for. And the politicians know it. See, the problem with all of this is that we bring to it human understandings of what ruling and dominion are about, rather than the ideas of rule shown to us by Jesus himself, who is, of course, the exact image of God. He shows us a very different way of exercising dominion, a servant model, for he was the servant king. And those of a certain generation would want to start singing now, but we can't do that, really. Wonderful Graham Kendrick song called The Servant King. Jesus does not only show us what God is like. In doing that, he also shows what we should be like as those made in the image of God. Our view of God needs to be Jesus-shaped rather than trying to fit Jesus into our view of God. But we must also allow our view of exercising dominion to be Jesus-shaped. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that we are to share the mind of Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be taken advantage of, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Jesus exercised dominion for the sake of those he could come to serve. Now, in the same way, I think, we should not count being made in the image of God as something to be taken advantage of, but we should serve the creation. Being made in the image of God is all about responsibilities, not privileges and rights. It's a calling, not a status. The dominion entrusted to humanity, like God's own exercise of dominion, involves respect, protection, and care for others, rather than mastery and manipulation. We'll have a few pictures now. Something about the importance of caring for the creation in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, alongside people being given the seventh day off, the Sabbath, the land was given the seventh year off, what's called the fallow year. This is 3,000 years ago. It wasn't discovered in the Middle Ages. This was 3,000 years ago. Exodus 23, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and fallow, meadows, so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. Uh, this was the closest I could get to a beast of the field. <laughs> For six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your servant woman and the stranger in your household may be refreshed and in terms of creation God insists that those made in his image should care for animals both wild and domesticated finally alongside being made in the image of God as a gift of God in creation it's also a calling for us to grow into we're called to grow into the likeness of Christ as individuals, but as a redeemed humanity, we're called to grow into the image of God, to grow in the likeness of Christ and how we look after creation. And it's only then that instead of being part of the problem, we can be part of the solution. Doing now what we should have done from the beginning. 
we should listen to a wonderful part of scripture from Romans 8. Um, I was just looking at it just now, um, and I found it. It's in the New Testament, isn't it, Romans? Yeah. I loved the song we had, by the way. The Lamentation of Creation. Romans 8, 19. Um, I consider that our present... Uh, sorry, here it is. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And as I was uh, sat around with, with the Bible in front of me, I, I, my mind was taken to, well, no, the Spirit taught me, took me to this um, this is this passage. The worship of heaven. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The creation is not going to be destroyed. Our hope as Christians includes hope for God's amazing creation. A renewed heaven and a renewed earth, a new creation. And we know that because of a covenant that God made with the earth. If we can see the picture, please. The rainbow. The rainbow is a bow without weapons, without arrows, without weapons. God's promise to creation is that he will not destroy it, and therefore it matters how we look after it. So what is our place in creation? Serving it and looking after it, and through that enabling the whole creation to praise its creator God. Let's pray. Lord, we're amazed at your wonderful creation. We're distressed at how we, how we live in it and how we abuse it. Lord, help us to exercise this calling as uh, in, in exercising dominion over um, your creation. And Lord, may we do it in the way that Jesus did it the way that Jesus is. May we see being made in the image of God as a responsibility, not a right, as a calling, not as a status. In Jesus' name, amen.